I'm not much of a golfer, but I do get, a, get out occasionally just enough to know the accuracy of that quote that golf is a good walk spoiled. I did uh, play more while living in Ireland, and it was there while living in Port Rush on the north coast of Northern Ireland that I probably had my most sobering golfing experience. Uh, some American friends insisted that I join them to play Royal Port Rush, uh, the course which uh, you may know has since hosted the British Open in 2019. Uh, I acquiesced, and that day a good hole for me was when I only lost one ball on that particular hole. Uh, the fairways at Royal Parash are very narrow. On either side, there's a lot of rough. The rough's made up of very thick gorse, such that it was pretty much impossible to find any mishit ball. Uh, but the other consistent feature at Parash, which is certainly not unique to that course, is the wind. Some of you I know are golfers, and if you've ever played any of the famous courses in Ireland or in Great Britain, you'll know the challenge that the wind can provide as you work your way around those link courses. Some of the great British Open champions of the late 1800s, men like Harry Varden, J.H. Taylor, uh, James Braird, were famous for how they mastered keeping the golf ball low to the ground to prevent it ballooning up in the air where the wind would catch it and blow it in a direction that they didn't want it to go. But in more recent years, one player has garnered more recognition for this shot more than any others. Tiger, Tiger Woods may not have discovered this shot, but he certainly made it famous such that it's been re renamed the Tiger Stinger or the Stinger Golf Shot. And if you've ever seen Tiger or others play this shot, you'll recall how the ball just takes off like a bullet out of a rifle and travels at a low trajectory, uh, piercing through the wind and more often than not arriving at its intended destination. Now, I tell you that because Jesus' parables, which is our focus uh, Sunday by Sunday over the summer, have been said to be stories that, that, are, uh, that have a sting with a tail, T-A-L-E, that the parables are stories with a sting in the tail, T-A-L-E, that on the surface the stories seem somewhat innocuous, charming little narratives full of familiar images, easily grabbing our imaginations, but in reality they're sort of like a stinger shot that they're specifically designed to evade our psychological defenses and penetrate through to our hearts and our minds in spite of every wind of resistance pushing back in the other direction. And we have such a sting in the tale of today's parable, a parable traditionally called the parable of the dishonest manager. So we pointed out uh, week by week in this series, Jesus uses these parables in his teaching as a way to open up to all of us the realities of the kingdom of God, what God's kingdom looks like, the rule and the reign of God in, in this world and beyond, and the difference that it will make in our lives if we are to be part of that kingdom. And that's the purpose of this parable as well despite many people thinking that this parable is Jesus' most frustrating and confusing parable. I hope by the end of today we won't find it terribly frustrating or confusing. In fact, I hope that it's actually going to show us something very important about the kingdom of God, that kingdom people don't live in the now for now, they live in the now for then. Kingdom people don't live in the now for now, they live in the now for then. And to see how Jesus gets us to that conclusion, we're going to look at the parable in two parts today. First of all, kingdom people are shrewd, and secondly, kingdom people invest in people. 
But before we get to that, we're going to read the passage. It's uh, in Luke chapter 16. You'll find it on page 875 in your pew Bibles or on page 10 in your order of worship. Hear now the word of the Lord. He, that is Jesus, also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. And he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write eighty. And the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. It's trustworthy and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Let me pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So first, kingdom people are shrewd. This parable comes right on the heels of perhaps, in contrast, Jesus best beloved parable, the parable of the prodigal son. Indeed, it actually comes on the heels of three parables in Luke 15 about lost things, lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And in each of those parables, that which is lost is found, and the result, Jesus tells us, is unbridled joy and celebration. Those parables paint this beautiful picture of heaven's joy over each and every person in the world who has turned their back on God, wandered away from God, and then in Repentance and faith have come back into the loving embrace of the Heavenly Father's arms. But the words of the, of, in the last parable of the father to the elder brother about the younger brother in Luke 15 verse 32 are actually words that could be spoken of every single one of us who is a believer and follower of Jesus. The father says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost is found. And that's true of every one of us who's a Christian, that we once were dead, but we're now alive in Christ. We, we once were, were lost, but now we're found. But I want you to notice how Jesus then transitions to our parable in chapter 16, verse 1, where, he, where Luke says, he also said to his disciples. And I think with that also, Luke presents to us what comes next at the beginning of chapter 16 as something of a continuation of what was going on in chapter 15, so that now rather, but now rather than thinking in a traditional set of three parables, as we normally think of Luke 15, that we expand our vision to actually realize it's sort of a set of four. 
But notice that with this fourth parable, Jesus' audience shifts. Jesus had been addressing the parables of Luke 15 to the Pharisees. They had been grumbling about how Jesus was spending so much time with the tax collectors and the sinners. According to later in chapter 16, those Pharisees are still milling around, grumbling about. But at the start of this chapter, Jesus turns his attention to his disciples because he wants to apply Luke 15, the Luke 15 parables to his followers. He's setting up this parable to ask a specific question to us along these lines, that assuming that you're rejoicing like heaven is rejoicing over God bringing in the lost, how practically is that joy reflected in your life? And that joy could be reflected in several ways, but Jesus here is going to hone into one particular way And he's not going to unveil it completely until he provides us with the sting in this particular tale, but first he tells us the tale. And the tale, the parable, involves a wealthy man whose business interests are run for him by a fund manager. However, it comes to the attention of the wealthy man that this manager is underperforming, or as Jesus puts it at the end of verse 1, he's wasting his possessions. We don't know how this manager was wasting the the guy's uh, things, whether he was somewhat lavish in his use of the expense account or some other way, but it seems that someone quickly, once they'd found out, had gone and squealed to the boss and reported the manager's squandering ways, all of which results in a summons to the office. And the conversation is, reading between the lines in verse, verse 2, is somewhat brief along the lines of, what on earth is going on? I need you to turn in the books. I need you to hand over the accounts because your time here is done. You're fired. The manager knows that it's curtains for him as far as his current employment is concerned, and so uh, he realizes the boss is on to him. But it doesn't appear that the sacking is with immediate effect because there does seem to be a little bit of a time lag here such that the manager has some space to think and to hatch up a plan before his departure, and indeed a plan is hatched, a plan that is built not on living in the now now but living in the now for them. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Now, you get the sense that up to this point, this manager has lived a pretty comfortable life. He, he knows what it is to be accustomed to the good things of life. Uh, and so as he considers his new job opportunities, he doesn't really like what he sees. He's had a good white-collar job up to this point. He's not about to go blue-collar. He's got no interest in digging ditches. The only calluses this guy might have had were on his elbows from propping up his arms on his desk. Manual labor was not for him. The other prospect he thought was begging. He's too ashamed to go down that route. So rather than risking having to use his back, this manager uses his brains and comes up with a plan so that when he's finally escorted out of the building with his little box of personal belongings, he's going to have people ready to show him some hospitality. So what's his plan? Well, we read what the manager does in verses 5 to 7 here. The manager calls in his boss's many debtors one by one, invites them essentially to tear up the existing promissory note. He presents a new note to them, the debtors to sign. He sends them the way. He says, I'll take care of the details from here. Jesus gives us just two examples here of what must have been many, many particular transactions. The first debtor comes along. He owes the rich man a hundred measures of oil. That was about 875 gallons. 
If you're trying to picture what 875 gallons is, I'm told if, uh, that uh, it's the equivalent of filling up your bathtub to the rim 25 times. There, now you know. All of which is to say this was not some domestic quantity that you were using to make dinner in the kitchen. The manager was negotiating the financing of a business transaction, and the people involved here were involved with the movement of the shipment of, of goods. And, and the money involved here, therefore, was not insignificant either. New York Magazine recently updated its olive oil rating in March. I'm sure you know all this, uh, but just to save you going to look, uh, Iliada Extra Virgin Olive Oil is rated currently as the best for cooking, and it currently goes for $53 uh, a gallon, which means that this transaction involved this debt owed to the rich man was in the ballpark of $46,000. It's not an insignificant sum. And the manager says, cut it in half. And then the second guy comes who owes a debt, and he owes 40,000 liters of wheat, and the manager says, I want you to reduce your debt by 20%. So you kind of get the picture of what's going on here. Now, if you read some of the commentators on this, they start to try to work out kind of behind the scenes what's really going on. For example, some claim the manager was just cutting out the high interest that was built in to the loan, or perhaps he was deleting his own commission from the charges such that the boss actually wasn't losing anything himself. All of that, I think, really is conjecture. What the text does seem to strongly suggest is that the adjustments of these bills were solely a selfish ploy on the part of the manager to secure his own future. I mean, if you look over, scan over verses 3 and 4, it's all me, it's all I, it's all about him. Scheme's all about planning for his future now that he's been fired. And you might say, well, up to this point, there really isn't that much that's surprising in this story. In fact, some of you might be thinking, you know what, this, this manager sounds suspiciously like some of the people I've known who've worked on Wall Street over the years. Nothing surprising there. But no, the surprise is what comes out of the mouth of Jesus next. It's the punchline that raises eyebrows, because in verse 8, Jesus provides us with the sting in this particular tale where he says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So Jesus doesn't end this parable with, isn't it terrible that people do this kind of thing? Don't be like this manager. No, though the sting in the tail of this tale is that you should learn from this man, not from his dishonesty. Hear me here. Jesus is not commending the manager for his dishonesty. Please do not come up to me after the service and say, I can't believe Jesus is commending to us such a dishonest man. That's not his point here. He's commending one thing and one thing only, and it's his shrewdness. It's his ingenuity, not his lack of integrity, that is highlighted and praised by Jesus. So that it really, if you want a one-sentence summary of what Jesus is saying here, you get it from the lips of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, where Jesus says that his followers are to be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. And it was with such shrewdness that this manager quickly learned to live now, not in the, in the now for now, but in the now for then. So that's the story, and Jesus ends the story telling us we should follow this bad man's good example, namely his shrewdness, how he was astute and ingenious and clever and creative and sharp. But look again at what Jesus says in the second half of verse 8, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. 
And you hear what Jesus is saying here. He said that those of us who are Christians, that's the sons of light in this sentence, have much to learn from the an unbelieving world when it comes to shrewdness. So what is it that we have to learn? One old Scottish commentator suggested that the world demonstrates an ability here that we as the Christian church tend to be weak in. Uh, he, he described it as an ingenuity of contrivance. An ingenuity of contrivance. Now, that might sound like some kind of archaic, quaint, old phrase, but I think he's getting exactly what Jesus is talking about here. That when people in the business world and in nonprofit set about to contrive a, a strategy, they tend to be far more ingenious in their thinking, their methodology, their application than the average group of Christians who are trying to reach their community or their city or the world for Christ. Most of you living and working in New York for some time now know this far better than I do, that at work you'll brainstorm, you'll strategize, you'll not be afraid to try new initiatives. There's a willingness to fail on the road to trying to find greater success. Because in the world, people, people set out on a venture, and the, the dangers don't deter them, and the difficulties don't discourage them, and the distractions don't divert them. And Jesus seems to be saying, that's not, doesn't tend to be the way in my church. Now, it should be sa said that this is not always the case. Indeed, if you know anything of the recent history of this church over the last 15 years or so, uh, you'll know that as God has brought about a remarkable revitalization, and it is God who has brought about this revitalization, He has done so through a pastor, namely Jason, and other leaders who were here long before many of us, who knew what it was to be extremely shrewd as they navigated the myriad of challenges that they faced. And there are certainly other churches who have been shrewd like that. But my sense, and Jesus' words here would seem to bear this out, is that such ingenuity and wisdom and creativity are not the norm in Jesus' church. The norm is that God's people sort of just piddle along, with many happy just to keep things the way they've always been, where new things aren't tried because someone says, well, we once tried something new and it didn't work. One commentator has put it like this, if the average business took as much raw material to get as little return as the average local church does over 12 months, it would deserve to be completely bankrupt. Jesus says kingdom people need to be shrewd. And what Jesus then does is he applies this shrewdness in one very specific areas of our lives, which brings us to our second point and relates to our treasure at VBS this week, and that is kingdom people invest in people. Look at verse 9, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So Jesus picks up the, the shrewd actions of the manager in the story, and he applies it specifically to the way we should shrewdly be investing our financial resources now, not for the now, but for the then. There's quite a bit to unpack in this verse, but let's start with this phrase, unrighteous wealth. If you look at the older translations of this verse, you'll find that instead of the word wealth there, you'll find the untranslated Aramaic word mammon. You may have heard that word over the years. Uh, it's a word that only appears in the New Testament four times, and three of them appear in our passage today. In verse 9, where it's translated as wealth. In verse 11, it's translated as wealth. Verse 13, it's translated as money. And mammon, therefore, is not the New Testament's normal word for money. It's more like Jesus' nickname for money. 
And by giving money a name, I think Jesus is intimating how tricky and powerful money can be in each of our lives. That he personifies money through a nickname because he knows that money is not just treasure. It's treasure that we are constantly tempted to trust in. It exerts this mysterious magnetic power that draws our heart to it, even, even when we know better. That's why Jesus concludes this bigger section with the warning that you can't say that you trust God when your functional trust, you know, how your life really looks, your functional trust is in your money. As Jesus puts it, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. So he says that, but still look at how nuanced his, his approach to money is. He issues something of an insult to mammon by calling it unrighteous, which is actually the same Greek word as is used to describe the manager as dishonest. But at the same time, he gives us instructions as to how to use it well. He knows that money is tricky, but he wants us to learn how to be counter-tricky, to be shrewd and wise and clever in how we handle money. We need to learn how to use money while it's trying to use us. And here Jesus says the shrewd, wise way to use money is to invest in people because when your money fails, those people may receive you into eternal dwellings. So the next question in this verse is, well, what is, what is Jesus talking about when he says, when your money fails? Jesus is, is clearly relating our, our situation to that of the manager in the parable, and that we too are living in a financial system that one day is going to come to a, a screeching halt. This is not Jesus sort of giving you an insider track on, on how the market's going to crash in three months, six months, or a year. No, this is Jesus, tell, His way of telling us that we all live in a temporary economy because a day is coming when the world as we know it will end, and Jesus will return to usher in the new world, to usher in a consummated, perfected kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. In the, and in the bank of that world, the exchange rate for your dollar is zero. It's zero. That no matter how much you have, your money is going to fail one day. So, Jesus really here is, is very kindly giving us a heads up on this, warning us against the foolishness of thinking that the system in which we now live is the entire story. It's, that's all of reality. And the way to best exist in this reality is to put all your hopes and dreams in your money. Now, let me try to illustrate Jesus' point here through something that many of us may be familiar with. Imagine you're playing a game of Monopoly with your family, family members or your friends, and on this particular day, in this particular game, you are absolutely killing it. You're sweeping the board. You've acquired all the utilities. You've maxed out hotels on properties all the way from Baltic Avenue to Boardwalk. All the time, you're just rolling in a massive wad of those golden $500 bills. I mean, you couldn't be doing any better. You, you've become this real estate mogul on this particular day. And you've so much money, you've, you've worked out that within a round or two, you're going to have more money than the bank. You're loving it and you end up winning. And then the game is over, and you gather up all the pieces and the hotels, those little hotels, and the bills and the board, and you put it back in the box, and you put the lid in the box, and that's it. Why? Because the whole thing was a temporary economy. I mean, you try to sneak out a few of those golden $500 bills and take them down to Bloomingdale's and try to buy something with them, they're going to laugh in your face. 
Why? Because they don't belong out here in the real world. They belong back in the box. The only place they have values in the box. You might have been a millionaire in there, but your monopoly money is no good out here. But then think if there was a way to spend monopoly money inside the game in such a way that you could benefit out in the real world. A way to make your real estate deals in monopoly make a difference to your life in Manhattan. Imagine in the course of the game that you all of a sudden start acting suspiciously nice to one of the other players, and you start selling them properties, properties that they've been wanting the whole game, and, and trading in a way that significantly helps them while it's hurting you. And everyone else is thinking, ah, something fishy's going on here. What's going on? And slowly it dawns on them. You've decided that this game is a dead loss, and you'd rather do someone a monopoly favor in the hopes that you'll get a real-world favor in return. So that when the game is over and the box is all closed up, lo and behold, your mom makes you your favorite dessert because you traded her park place so that she could beat your dad. You converted worthless paper money for your mom's lemon meringue pie, that in the end you weren't playing Monopoly at all, you were playing sort of meta-monopoly for real-world results. And you see the parallel? One day Jesus says, this world as we know it is all going back in the box. In fact, you're going in a box too. And you can't take your money with you, and even if you could, remember, the exchange rate is zero. But what if you could use that money, this money that you have in this world, for real world, capital R, capital W, return? That's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Notice that here Jesus is talking about heaven, but he doesn't describe heaven in the way that some of you have thought of heaven, as fluffy clouds and us strumming harps on those clouds, or even as, as heaven paved, the roads paved in gold, or even just in terms of other biblical pictures of glory. No, Jesus here describes heaven in terms of friends that heaven is a world of friends. Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century theologian, once described heaven as a world of love, that heaven has always been a world of love because God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit have delighted in the love of one another for eternity. And the good news is that while you and I have disqualified ourselves from this world of love, through our lack of love for God and our lack of love for one another, Jesus came into this world to pour His love into us and upon us, the unloving and the unlovely, and He paid the penalty for our lovelessness on the cross, taking the penalty, dying in our place, and through that death and His subsequent resurrection from death to life, He did everything necessary to re-qualify you and me for this world of love, where if we have put our trust in Jesus and not in money or anything else, the promise is that we get to experience the love of God forever, and Jesus says here, the love of friends, the love of friends. And here, I think, is where our minds sort of kind of struggle with what Jesus is talking about here. He paints this picture for us where He invites us to imagine arriving in heaven, and as we're walking, walking around getting our bearings, someone comes up to us, and they tap us on the shoulder, and they say, excuse me, 
because you're going to discover that people are a lot more polite in heaven than they are in New York. They're going to say, excuse me, you don't know me, but you belonged to that church on the Upper East Side Park Avenue called Central, right? You say, yeah. You say, you know, when I was nine years old, I went to a vacation Bible school in that church, and I gave my life to Jesus at that vacation Bible school. And I know a lot of people gave a lot of time and gave a lot of their resources to make sure those VBSs happened every single year. It changed my life. I want to thank you. And you turn, and you're just kind of trying to say, whoa, 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 what happened there? And then, and then you see two people walking towards you, and one of them is gesturing towards you to their friend, and they come up to you, and, and they say, your college roommate was a, a missionary who went and helped plant a church in Tokyo, right? You're going, yeah. And you gave financially to your friend in all those years, even when the thing, things weren't looking that well, but you faithfully gave to that ministry. You said, yeah. And they said, you know, I became a Christian through that church in Tokyo, and I, I can't thank you enough. They walk away. You turn, you bump into this person beside you, and the person says to you, I know who you are. You're one of the earliest supporters of Micah Bragg and his ministry at RUFI at Columbia University, weren't you? He says, you know, I came to Columbia as a graduate student from Pakistan. When I came to America, I didn't even know what Christianity was. But through Micah and through others, I not only came to know what Christianity was, I came to know Christ. I came to know Jesus. And my life was never the same. Thank you so much. Can you imagine all the welcomes that are awaiting you in heaven? I mean, there are countless welcomes already lined up for members of this church because of your generosity as a church, just through your regular giving to Central, but then also to supporting ministries like the Bari Mission and, 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 say, and Safe Families and Reading Buddies. And for many of you, there are countless other welcomes awaiting you because of your generosity individually to people and ministries and missions in the city, in this country, and, and throughout the world. And on paper, you know, when you get your statements each month, it's just a number. It's just dollars and cents. But in the real world, in the real world, those dollars and cents will translate into so many welcomes from people whose lives were transformed in ways you, you will not know of until you get there. And the great thing is that there is the potential for countless more welcomes then as a result of how you and I invest our, in people with our money now. Jesus is telling us that this is hands down the wisest, shrewdest investment of your resources and my resources because it's the only one that is guaranteed to give you an eternal return. You know, every other investment is temporary, and to be honest, a bit of a pain in the neck, because if you miss what Jesus is saying here, then the closer you get to the end of your life, the more time you spend trying to work out, well, who's going to get what? And whether, whether you know those relatives, Jim and Mary, whether you still really like them, and whether you should give them someone else the portion that you were going to give to them. And Jesus says, no, no, if you want to invest shrewdly, if you want to invest wisely, invest in people, invest in the gospel, invest in eternity, that the genuineness of your Luke 15 joy over God's bringing in the lost be demonstrated as genuine as you reflect it in how you use your money. Be shrewd and invest in people. Don't live in the now for now. Live in the now for then. Because as the missionary Jim Elliott put it in this quotes at the beginning of your bulletin today, 
He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. She is no fool who gives what she cannot keep to gain what she cannot lose. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for telling this parable as as tricky as it can appear at first, but what a great promise it is that you give to us, that as we invest our treasures in your kingdom, that you not only change our lives, you change the lives of so many people so that that heaven will be a great party, a reunion of friends, of friends that we didn't even know we had. And so help us to work through the, the challenging application of this, of what it means for each one of us with our own resources. That even if we feel like we have limited resources, just eking it out here in the city, that as Jesus says, he or she who is faithful with little will be trusted with much. Help us to use what little we have so that we too might gain friends in heaven. We pray this in your name. Amen.